Well, just in case I didn't get to tell you earlier, happy Mother's Day to all you mothers. Everybody else, glad you're here too. But this message, um, of course, is Mother's Day and a day that we just really as a people, as a country, kind of stop and reflect. And it's a really good thing to stop and reflect upon our moms and what they do, sacrifices they make. Um, And just kind of stopping for a moment just to kind of recognize maybe the influence and the impact that moms have had um, in our lives. So I want to just ask you a couple questions before we even get to uh, the Bible and you see kind of what a good answer would be. I I actually went to Facebook. I got some of your responses, but I went to Facebook several weeks ago and and I just asked particularly the ladies. I said, how ready were you? Um, when you became a mom, I mean, how, how ready really were you? And, and that whole thing, I can tell by the laughs, like not at all ready. So some common responses, and I, it was really heartwarming to me. I respond, or, you know, I, I, I kind of experienced it, of course, being a dad, I experienced it differently than my wife or certainly differently than you. But I, some of the common things that, that people said, uh, that the lady said was, I just, until I had seen my child, like really had seen and felt and touched my child, like I never even knew there was that category of love. Like I just never knew that that even existed. And yet when the child came into your life, it's like this whole other level of love was just introduced to you and, and, and all of the beautiful complications that come with it. Another thing that some lady said was, the lack of sleep. They like totally were not ready for the lack of sleep. Anybody else? Moms, do you understand that? It's like I think the only thing that compares to the sleep deprivation that a mom experiences are the Navy SEALs. So moms, you're in pretty good in shape with all of that. I, I think of in our days, we had a very, very much a team kind of dynamic in both both of our kids, but I, I remember all of those sleepless nights and like zombie walks, you know, into the crib and, and all of that. And just that whole experience was fantastic. And you'd have so many other things that you learned, I'm sure. But then there was, there was one comment that really made me kind of wrestle with some things. And honestly, it, as far as the Bible really informed this talk, and there was, there was a certain person who responded and they said, the guilt associated with being a mother. And I was like, well, the guilt. I, I just hadn't thought about it like that. But it's the guilt of how do I make this person happy? How do I make them happy? How do I balance things on the farm? How do I keep this child fed and clothed? How do I keep my husband happy? How do I keep my other kids happy? How do I keep my employer happy? How do I keep my boss happy? How do I keep my mother and father-in-law happy? Oh, I can't forget about my mom and dad. And all in the midst of that, ladies, you know you have to make it look easy right? It's like, how do you do that? So I guess when you fail in those moments, that is where maybe the guilt comes. So maybe for you, maybe motherhood for you, and certainly if you're a guy, even honestly, I think all of us can really connect with this next idea. Maybe for you, you just kind of feel like you're just spinning plates all the time. Like your life is just a matter of I've got to do this, and it's up to me to do this, and I've got to balance this, and this is going to be awkward, but I'm going to do it. Other, everything except the dress, you know, I nailed it, right? That was like the whole thing, and it's like all of this is depending upon you, and if you fail someone or something, and, and, and what happens like when, when you, you don't do as well as you could, and you still have to maintain friends, and you've got your church life, your social life, your work life, your family life, farm life, whatever it is for you, and you're spending all of these plates, but what happens when, when you drop a plate? What happens when, 
when one of the plates just crashes to the floor. What do you do in that situation? Like, how do you feel? Like when, when one of those plates fall and all of those things that you consider and that you're balancing right now in that picture, when it comes crashing to the floor, that's something important that came crashing to the floor. If it wasn't important, you wouldn't be doing it. But what is it we can learn about that? What is it we can learn about maybe when the plate comes crashing to the floor, maybe there's something we can learn about that whole experience. Maybe we learn something about ourselves, and maybe we just learn something about God right in the midst of that. Maybe, just throwing this out there, maybe it's a little early, maybe it's not our responsibility to keep all those plates spinning. Maybe. Another question, and this teases up uh, the Bible where we're going to be, just with, with clarity, how do you balance all the responsibilities of being a mother? How do you do that? How do you currently do that? How do you maintain the, the tension that, that you feel with the plate spinning? How do, you, how do you react when a plate falls? And, and guys, students, we're all in the same boat because we all try and pick up more things than what we ought to. How do you balance all the responsibilities of being a mother or a father or a son or a daughter? The big idea for today is this. When you do the right thing at the right time, then you can trust that God will bring the right results. When you simply do the right thing at the right time, then you can trust God will bring the right results. If you have your Bible we're actually going to see this answered um, remarkably well in Esther 4. Um, before we get there, I want to kind of give you a help in case you're new to the Bible and we're a type of church where people are coming back to faith or maybe they're just kicking the tires on faith at all and we just want to welcome you if you're part of, that's maybe you're just starting to begin your spiritual journey. Um, even if you didn't even bring in a Bible, I want to help you with one of the, the, the chair, the Bibles are around the room under your chair. But if, if you want to find the book of Esther, if you just literally flip your Bible open right in the middle, you'll probably, probably be right in the range of uh, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, or Psalms. If you go to the left, just a, just a few pages, um, right past Job, it looks like Job in English, but it's Job. If you get past Job, then you're going to see Esther, and Esther is actually the last history book, uh, the last book uh, that's considered in the history section of the Old Testament. So that is Esther. Esther, this storyline can be validated even outside of the Bible. So just in case you're a little skeptic of the whole Bible thing, you can actually, there's some of these same people who are going to be mentioned in the, in the biblical text can be verified historically outside of the Bible. These events happened approximately 400 years before the birth of Jesus at a time where the nation of Israel had been dominated over and over and over by different countries. And now uh, the particular country who was dominating them and who had dominated them were the Persians. There are four main characters in this story. The story's true. Um, there is a, a king by the name of Xerxes. Good luck spelling that. Um, it's Xerxes, and then there's someone who speaks for the king. You're going to see this in the text. His name is Haman. He's kind of the right-hand man of the king. And then you see a gentleman by the name of Mordecai. He's a government official, but he's a Jew. And then you see Esther, who eventually, who is actually the queen now in this text. She's the queen, but she's also Jewish. So she's the queen of a Persian king, but she herself 
is Jewish. So this really becomes the backdrop of understanding this. And she had recently been, uh, there was tension in the land and King Xerxes had booted the old queen. And then he brought all of the new prospects, the beautiful prospects into his harem. And he said, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, Esther, you're the one. He brought Esther in to be the new queen. Women were devalued in their culture, unfortunately. But all part of this becomes the backdrop of understanding what we're going to jump into in just a moment. So at this time, Persian government, there were approximately like 15 million Jews who had been dispersed around the land. This would be a great tool later in the New Testament because these same people would be just seeds of evangelism that would be just spread throughout the whole Judean countryside and really that whole area of the country. So then after uh, the resurrection of Jesus, these same people would then be pockets of good news. So God is, is being, uh, God is using exactly what's happening here to further his kingdom that would be in hundreds of of years. Something particular about Esther also is this uh, you see God's activity all over the storyline of Esther, but God's name is not in this book. So you see God's hand moving, but yet the name of God or Yahweh um, in the Hebrew is, is never referred to, not once, but you see God's activity over and over and over again. We're going to pick it up in Esther 3, starting verse 8 through 11. And the main text we're going to be in is Esther 4. Verse 8 through 11 says this, Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the providences of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all the other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. By them, that means the Jews, the Israelites, to destroy them. And I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So Haman is trying to use his own money. It literally, like that would be a, like approximately 375 tons of silver. He's willing to kind of give to these people. That's a lot of cash. It's worth a lot. So he is saying, I'm willing to do this myself. And he's trying to bribe people in essence or motivate them, but it's bribery to go out and to do his handiwork. Haman wanted to see the Jewish people dead. That's what he wants to do. So he's now conspiring. He's the second in charge under King Xerxes, King Xerxes is one to, or excuse me, Haman is one to, wanting to try and manipulate King Xerxes to destroy, annihilate the Jews. Something that's happened throughout the years. Of course, the plan did not work, and the Lord said that it would not. Now, in between this text and in verse 15, where we're going to see is... Haman's plan is starting to kind of take root. And because of it starting to take root, um, we know that, that Haman is actually operating as the king because in the, back, in the last part of that passage that we just read, there was a reference to the signet ring. Now, a signet ring for a king and in their culture, a ring would be very specific to that person. It would be like an autograph. And a signet ring would be their seal, their individual seal. 
So the king, King Xerxes, takes off his signet ring and he hands it to Haman. That way, when the actual decree, when the paperwork, when the scroll, whatever it was, was passed around, it would have the king's seal on it. So when Haman is doing these things, it's as if he's doing, or it's as if the king himself is doing it. So he was, Haman was operating under full authority of the king. Well, he issues this decree. And it's that now the decree is being spread out throughout all of the Jews. And the Jews are hearing word of what's about to happen. About how the plan of annihilation. In verse 15, it says this. Notice the king's response. It says, spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out. And the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. The city was thinking, what in the world is going on? Has the king gone mad while the king and Haman are sitting down having a drink? Just totally drawn away from the reality and the mess that's about to be brought upon these people. The main text is Esther 4, verse 1, starting in verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went out only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came, he told her about Mordecai. She was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. See, she herself is bewildered because she herself is a Jew, but she's out of touch with the Jewish people in this moment. And she's starting to hear word. These these rumors are going around about what the king is doing. And she has no idea what's going on. And now she hears of Mordecai. It's a family member of hers. Mordecai is then, he is He's in mourning. He has, they literally, what they would do is they would put on baggy dark clothing and they would pour ashes over themselves and they would weep and mourn and wail publicly. That's so foreign to us in our culture because in the Western countries, we think if we show expression of grief, then that's weakness. And that's just so not right. But for them, their their matter of, of weeping and the grief publicly, that was just a part of their culture. It's still a part of their culture today. In 1994, I had the opportunity to, to go to this place. Actually, I took a cruise ship to go to Jerusalem. It was actually a Navy cruise ship, but it was a cruise ship nonetheless to go into and to Jerusalem, and I remember it so well because we were dropped off. We hit port and around Haifa, Israel, and we took these tour buses. We were, look, we were like the most American of American people, all a bunch of sailors and Marines on these tour buses. And we got on the tour bus in Haifa, Israel. We left Haifa, and we're just, just driving through the, the country land there, or just the, the country in the Mideast, and it was beautiful and rugged and wonderful. 
and, and wild. And then we pulled up to a place called the Elvis Inn, which was not rugged and not wild. It was the most American place you can imagine in the middle of the Middle East. It still exists. A couple of years ago, I actually looked this up, and it actually has a website for the Elvis Inn. You can look it up. and has a huge like statue of Elvis right out front. I still have it etched in my mind. Well, we left the Elvis Inn, took, got our snacks, and had some fun. We went into, into Jerusalem, and one of the stops was at a place that is um, within the Jewish culture. It's, it's one of the holiest places on earth. And it's called the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. And it is, it is to them, they believe that it was uh, the original place of Solomon, the Western Wall of Solomon's Temple. So they go there, literally, they will go there every day. And there will be people who, who go up to this wall, and there's a live feed of this wall, 24 hours a day, a live feed. You can actually see people at the wall wailing and weeping. I remember when we went there, we entered in through that, this little gate, or little security area, and there was a big courtyard going up before the western wall. And, and they told us some things. They said, all right, you guys need to be quiet. And there's a bunch of sailors and Marines, like, good luck. Like, you need to be quiet. You need to be respectful. Don't look too American. At that time, I had a Miami Dolphins, like I had Miami Dolphins gear on. The only thing that would have been more American is the flag. So I, and so, so I, I was like, well, I'm just not going to do that. And they said, what, whatever you do, don't, if you can approach the wall, but don't go all the way up to the wall because it could be considered rude or disrespectful. So I listened to their advice, and when I approached the wall, and I went up to the wall, I'm standing at the wall, and and to my right and to my left, there were people literally wailing. And it was still, and they were sitting praying, but they are praying out loud. It wasn't their faith over there, and I think we could learn a lot from this. Their faith is is public, uh, not just private. And so then it was a public expression of mourning. And this would be in their culture. They would mourn something that was going to happen to them as a, as a people. So the Jewish people would just mourn something that would happen to Jewish people. They would mourn a bankruptcy. They would mourn a loss of life, but they would mourn publicly. It is Mother's Day. And I, I just, I know that, that this day is a reminder, and like it is for me. I lost my mother a couple years ago. And maybe for this day, you just need my permission to say, it's okay to mourn if you need to mourn. It's okay to grieve if you need to grieve. And I think that, they, that your mother would be most honored by remembering her and, and doing that if that's what needs to happen. So continuing on in our passage, verse 6, Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and to explain to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hatak and went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and all, all the people of the royal provinces know that for any reason a man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he, that he would be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the, golden, the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed 
since I was called and to go and be with the king. So Esther is in a very difficult situation, but what she understands is that her God is in charge, and because her God is in charge, she can have courage. You see, if we can trust our life to God and we say, you know what, I trust that God is in charge of all of those spinning plates, then I can have courage to embrace what I'm supposed to embrace and I can kind of walk away from the things I don't have to walk away from and I can I can dig into the things that I'm supposed to dig into you see that's one of the the overlying things you see with Esther's story is when difficult things happen in our life it just has a way of focusing us on the things that are the most important and that's what you see she understands that, that she is the one who's, who God is about to use to bring deliverance for these people. That there are going to be millions of people who die if someone doesn't act. She's in the tension of, well, how do I make the king happy? How do I make Mordecai happy? How do I, how do I just kind of, how do I just kind of live my life that, as the queen and do what I'm supposed to do and all the responsibilities of the queen? And how is it that I'm supposed to be carrying the burden of these other 15 million Jews who live in the Persian Empire? It's impossible. How in the world could she keep all of those plates spinning? Of course she can't. And you can't either. But she knows that when God is in charge, then we can have courage. Let's jump back in, verse 15. We're going to see how this ends. Actually, verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply Back to Mordecai, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She is trusting that God has a plan and that God's plan will go on with or without her. She is trusting that God is in charge. It is not her primary responsibility to keep all of those plates spinning in this crisis that's coming in this moment. She counts the cost, trusting God. She is about, she says, I'm committed to do the right thing at the right time and I'm gonna trust that God's gonna bring the right result. She was doing what only she could do, but that's all she was called upon to do. And that's it. That's it. Esther counted the cost. She was willing to give of herself for others. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He gave of himself for sinners like me. Such a picture of Jesus that you see in the storyline of Esther. Somebody who was willing to commit her life to a greater cause, knowing that, that ultimately that God would win out. And that's what Jesus did. The scripture I, I want to share with you that conveys this point is 1 Timothy 
And it says this, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. So before I get to the back end of this, this verse, I just, I just know that somebody in here has not received the gospel fully. You just haven't. You've accepted it intellectually. It's been beat into your head by your mama. It's been beat into your head by people like me. You've seen it on the back of people's bumper stickers. You've, you've seen it on the back of people's shirts. You heard about it at different events. Everybody assumes that the gospel is alive in you, but you've only received it to the level of your intellect. And if it, you have only received it to the level of your intellect, you are doomed in your sins. There is no salvation that only touches the intellect. The only salvation that is valid is is a salvation that penetrates to your heart. And it is the gospel message that deserves full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like you and sinners like me. He didn't give preferential treatment. He looked at broken people and he offered the solution for their sins because he knew that their sins would doom them to an eternal state separated from God in a place called hell. And if you've only received the gospel message to the intellectual level, you have no salvation at all. Salvation has to penetrate deeper than the mind into your heart, into your soul. You have to be born again and it deserves full acceptance. Maybe for you, this is the reason why you came. Maybe this is the, a divine moment in your life where, where, where now God is speaking to you and you just realize that you don't have a salvation that's rooted in Jesus. You have a salvation that's rooted in the myth of your mind. And maybe that's why you're here. It, deser- it deserves full acceptance into your life. And maybe in this moment where you just, you feel, for lack of better terms, you feel like God is drawing you to himself. And maybe you're more aware of your sin condition than you've ever been. I just want you to say that is the best place that you can be because by being aware of your sin, it brings you to a point of surrender before a holy and righteous and a saving God. But until you have an awareness of your sins, the salvation Is not there for you. So maybe for you, you just need to stop in this moment and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I want you to be my savior. I believe in the grace that comes through the cross. Please come into my life. I surrender my life to you. Save me. Save my soul. That deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You see, Jesus, he didn't do a bunch of things all the time. He did the right thing at the right time. If you look through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see when Jesus would step before a person, he was fully engaged in that situation with that person at that time, maybe it was a maybe it was a group, maybe it was a person, but but Jesus didn't bring other people's affairs into those responsibilities. It's as if Jesus knew that he didn't have to spin plates all the time either. It's just a matter of wherever he was, he was fully engaged in that moment. You see, what I believe 
full, I believe this full well, and you can back this up in, in John 15. I believe if we are abiding, if we're remaining in Christ, we can be fully engaged in any situation. I believe if we're abiding in Christ, if we're spending time with Jesus, and we're becoming like Jesus, and we're doing what Jesus did, I believe in those moments, then I can be, I, I can just be in the moment. I can be who, I can do what it is that I'm supposed to do in the moment that I'm supposed to do it, and I can trust God with the affairs of the world because it's not my job to keep all those plates spinning. Maybe when those plates spin and you have the awareness of that, maybe that's God's grace to you to remind you you can't control things and you can't control people. And maybe when that plate hits the floor and it breaks, it's a reminder of of your lack of being able to be in control of the affairs of the world because it's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to do the right thing at the right time and trust God with the right results. That's our responsibility. That was what Esther modeled. That's what Jesus perfectly modeled. And that's, the, that's really the, the, the model for our lives. And moms, dads, just guys, gals, wherever you are in listening to this, this should be really the model of our life. That when we abide in Jesus, that, that way, if we're doing that, then he is complete in us. And then I can engage in the situation I'm supposed to. And I can keep the other things out of my mind. So if I'm with my wife, I can be fully in that moment. If I'm with my kids, I can be fully in that moment. And when I go to work, I can be fully in that moment. And in those, if I'm being complete in Christ, I don't have, I don't have the cares of the world. I don't know about you, but did you realize you didn't make the sun come out today? You didn't. You didn't make the grass grow. You didn't. Your heart's not beating because you told it to. The flowers blooming, probably because of the rain yesterday. You didn't do that. I didn't do that. We just sit back and just admire God's handiwork that God has a plan and God is in control of things. And as a matter of fact, maybe it's not our responsibility to keep all of those plates spinning anyway. Maybe it's to just sit back and maybe this is the reason why you worry. Maybe this is the reason why you stress. It's because you are trying to listen to me. Maybe it's because you're trying to assume too much control. And it was never yours to have. And it was never yours to handle. And maybe... The plate hitting the floor is God's grace to you to change something. So I'm going to give you some pointers on maybe some things for us to kind of continue to wrap our mind around. Esther lived out what we must. Jesus perfectly lived out what we must. You see, we, we kind of go into life with a false expectation that balance is possible. But I want to contend to you that I think balance is a myth. I think it's a myth. It's a myth that we put in our mind that we, because we seek to control things. We think, well, if I balance this and balance that and balance this and balance that and got one on my shoulder and one on my back, one on my hip, if I'm balancing all these things, then if I can control it, then it's going to be taken care of. But when the plate hits the floor, it's a reminder that we can't take, we can't take care of everything all the time, all that well. And the myth, the balance myth is this. Well, I can perfectly balance my husband, my kids, my job, my friends, my home, my parents, my mother-in-law, my service to my community, my career, and physical fitness, hobbies, and financial goals at the same time. And ladies, you know this to be true, and you have to make it look easy. And it's a myth. And you're going to do that all at the same time? I think we found the reason why you're stressed. I think we found the reason why you worry. 
I think we found the reason why you try and control things that you ought not control. Plates. But the spinning plates, they're important, aren't they? I mean, if if you weren't trying to spin them, they wouldn't be important. I, I learned the difference between important and vital several years ago. I got ready to go play golf with my dad and I just started to have this pain in my side and was just going to go play golf. My dad was a paramedic for years and so we're ready and I'm, I'm all suited up and getting ready to hit all the golf balls in the woods because that's pretty much my golf game um, and listen to him laugh. So I, I was just ready to have this whole experience and go do all that. I just had this nagging pain in my side and my dad because he's a paramedic and he knows that stuff better than me, he kind of, he told me, I don't remember which side it was, I have a scar, but I, I just, whatever it was, he's like, hey, you need to put pressure on that and, and if the pressure gets worse and blah, blah, blah. And he said, I, I think that it's your appendix. Well, a little bit later that day, I would actually have my appendix taken out. You see, uh, it, it was kind of important. God gave it to me, but I'm still alive today, which shows you that it's not really vital for life, Right? It's some, some time between when I needed it and now, it became not vital anymore. It was important. I mean, the surgery hurt. It was it verified that it was important, but it wasn't vital. And everything that you do, I'm sure that you consider it to be important, but it's not vital. What if we chose to cheat? What if we just stop the spinning plates in our mind? We just stopped that and simply chose to cheat. See, the cheating is, you're going to feel like it's cheating because it's important. Because if you didn't do it, it wouldn't be important. You're going to feel like you're cheating. But, but I want to just contend to you something that even in moments like this, when you feel like, oh, what is he saying? You know what I'm saying. But, but living this out, I realize is more difficult than just me speaking words. You see, if we choose to cheat, we're going to feel like we maybe are letting something down. But maybe what we're doing is we're letting something down of lesser value to gain something of greater value. Maybe we're supposed to just set that plate in someone else's hand, maybe set that plate in God's hand and say, God, I, I think you're big enough to handle this. And maybe in that moment, we're just saying, okay, it's not that important for me to wrestle with, and yet we're going to choose to cheat and do something else. And by choosing to cheat, this definition came from Andy Stanley. The cheating refers to the time, effort, and energy you take away from one sphere of life in order to pour into another sphere of life. So you only have so much energy, you only have so much time, you only have so much opportunity. So when you you seek God and you abide in Christ and you're you're with Jesus and then you can put that plate in his hand because you're not in charge, you're not able to control that anyway. And it's going to feel like cheating like you're missing something, but really what you're going to gain is peace of mind. What you're really going to gain is a deeper walk with God, what you're really going to gain is understanding that God is sovereign over the affairs of the world. And you are not. That's what you're going to gain. So that's what I mean by cheating. You cheat by giving up something good for something better. When we do the right thing at the right time and trust God that will bring the results. It is so 
freeing. It literally feels like the weight is coming off of your shoulders. So I just want to ask you moms, dads, students, guys, gals, I just want to ask you this question. What plate is spinning under your control that needs to be handed off to someone, whether it's a person or whether it's God? Let's not wait until it crashes and then you have the result of that. How about you just seek God and say, you know what, I'm going to give that plate to him. It's, it's important, but it's not vital. See, I believe if we do that, the story is different. I believe that there's actually so much more of us, so much more energy, so much more time that can be used for better things instead of just settling for good things. And that's what I want for you, and that's what I want for me. But it starts when we do the right thing at the right time, trusting that God will bring the right results. After all, he's God and we're not.